Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, business editor for Variety. Today, my guest is James Moore, managing partner and CEO of Vine Alternative Investments. James gives us an investor's guide to navigating the content business. He discusses the growth of the asset management firm and its approach to building a diversified portfolio of content, production, and IP holdings. Vine is the parent company of Village Roadshow and other established industry entities, and it has slowly but surely been amassing a library through acquisitions. As Moore explains, Vine hopes to help fill the void for global TV buyers as Hollywood's largest studios focus on funneling content into vertically integrated streaming platforms. Moore started Vine in 2006 after 16 years as a banker with J.P. Morgan. That experience taught him that media investing could be demystified and made more predictable and thus more palatable to investors. He had a trial by fire with a startup launched just as the country went into its last recession. Now, he sees opportunities coming out of the current pandemic crisis. Jim Moore, Managing Partner and CEO of Vine Alternative Investments. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Cynthia. It's a pleasure. Um, well, you know, we are about uh, we're about two and a half months into an extraordinary environment that none of us could have even imagined three months ago would be would become something like the new normal. And it looks like, at least in some places, like California in particular, it looks like we're starting to very slowly turn the corner to reopening and getting to, to something that looks a little bit like normal. Um, for you as an investor, first and foremost, how have you kind of been spending this time? How have you been sizing up opportunities in the media landscape right now? Uh, great question. We've really continued to pursue our business model of investing in content-related opportunities. So as an investor, we see the landscape as being one uh, of high demand coming out of this. Uh, you know, the, the theatrical environment has been completely shut down. The streamers have been uh, very fortunate in, in growth opportunities because of this but it means their new customers and their old customers are consuming all of the content that it's on their platform. So we see across the board the need for the, the entire industry uh, to restock its content supply. And between the content investments in our portfolio and the production investments in our portfolio, it's really more of aligning them, trying to give them the resources they need so that they're out of the gate as quickly as possible when production uh, returns helping them through the process of development and getting all of those ducks in a row so that on the other side of this, we are able to meet what we expect to be a very robust demand for content. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that in every, in every study and every ratings report, you know, people, no surprise at this time are definitely tuned into their screens. And, and a, a number of people have said that this, this could be seen as the, you know, if there's a silver lining here, it is that people have had a chance to sample the incredible explosion in in content. Have you, I mean, the the media and entertainment has, was already in a period of consolidation before the lockdown hit. Do you think that, 
you know, coming out of this, the conventional wisdom is that the companies that were weak are going to be a lot weaker after just a, this abrupt shutdown. You know, do you see shopping opportunities as the world kind of starts to get back on its feet? I think that the conventional wisdom is probably largely correct. Um, but we're not just buyers. We are capital providers to the industry. So uh, it's not just about what can we buy because it, it struggled. It's what can we support uh, that needs our capital. So we look uh, across the spectrum at, at opportunities. Where are there platforms that uh, otherwise were very solid platforms, well-run platforms um, with good content, but with this headwind, you know, couldn't make it, where can we support them with our capital is just as much a part of our business plan as where have assets become available because of this situation and where can we add to our, our very large portfolio. Do you find, given that you do provide, you know, you do not just acquire, but you do provide that kind of liquidity, do those opportunities come for you to come in and support a struggling business, do those typically come from things that you and your team scope out or do they come from incoming phone calls? People know that you can provide that kind of financing and, and seek you out. It's a bit of both, but I'd say it's a little bit more on the outbound. Uh, I, don't, I don't think people think there's the type of creative capital out there as we can provide because almost everything we've done in the past has been pretty bespoke. It solved a very specific need for somebody in a very specific situation. And we have the capacity to meet those needs when people don't even know uh, that they either have the need or that there is a solution outside of their traditional thinking. So our outreach is very important to educating people. And they're not just struggling businesses. There are other businesses that now have competing priorities or are just you know, in need of another source of capital, given the extreme demand that's going to be on the whole system. So it's, we deal with everybody from well capitalized, but needing diversification in that capital to, you know, struggling and, and needing additional capital to greatly struggling and needing the ultimate liquidity solution. Mm -hmm. Did you have any deals that were in motion that were kind of put on ice by the pandemic? Uh, no, actually, it's accelerated some of the transactions that, mm. that we were looking at. So um, our transactions take a long time. It's a, it's a process of, of understanding the assets at a very granular level and understanding what the issues are. So we tend to have a lot of lead time for everything we've ever done. Uh, the pandemic has accelerated a couple of opportunities in our portfolio and we're moving that along. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, does, you know, does the conditions of the pandemic, the lockdown of the last couple of months, does that change, you know, price and value discussions at all? I mean, do you, is it, are, are the conditions that the industry is facing so significant, you think that you would have to reevaluate the terms of something that you would maybe, you know, come close to really nailing down like January or early February? Is it that significant? I think if you're focused on theatrically released pictures in an independent context, you'd have to revisit. Um, the market coming out of the pandemic, the opportunity to get your theatrical film in a theater with any meaningful amount of showing is going to be extremely challenged. So if that was your business model, uh, you have to revisit 
the economics of your business model. Our business model tends to focus more on established IP and the development of that IP into alternative platforms. So we haven't been as directly affected by this change. And we saw that change coming several years ago when we acquired Village Roadshow. Village was exactly that. They were solely relying on the theatrical market until we took them over and steered them in a different direction to focus on opportunities in television and streaming. And with Steve Mosco uh, having come on board and brought a team with him uh, and assembled a team around him to make that vision happen, that company has, has positioned itself extremely well for the content demand that's going to come in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little more about Village Roadshow, but let me ask you, although I realize this is out of the scope of your IP and content-focused business, as an, just as an investor and somebody who, you know, who evaluates markets, do you think that there is an opportunity for somebody to come in at a time when the major theater chains, the exhibition chains are really struggling, the AMCs, the Cinemarks, do you think that we'll see buying opportunities or consolidation in that market? Uh, well, just because they're cheaper, I don't know that that means it's a buying opportunity. Um, I don't know who has the crystal ball that knows what the theatrical consumer experience is going to look like six months from now or 12 months from now. Um, but if your vision is that it will return to something resembling normal and something resembling a reasonable time frame, I could see making that investment for the long term. But there's just so much unknown. Uh, how prevalent will social distancing be, either because of regulation or because of consumer preference? Are you going to want to go to the movies and sit next to or in front of somebody you don't know uh, as tightly as, as you have? And you know, that's a real estate business that relies on a certain density of consumer to make the numbers work. So you know, the, the chains that, that gave you more of a living room experience, the IPICs of the world, they were struggling long before the pandemic because it's a challenging business market to have so much space dedicated to so few people. Yeah. So no. there'll be opportunities because things are valued less. I just don't know if they're valued less, if they're still over or undervalued. With your acquisition of Village Roadshow, you recruited Steve Moscow, a seasoned television executive. Is it fair to say that at least in the short term, like year or two, that Village Roadshow will, you know, put more capital and energy towards television and digital content versus uh, theatrical films as it has in the past? That's uh, very accurate. Uh, that's a high priority drive of ours is to diversify that company into providing content to uh, a diversity of platforms. So they uh, have relationships with and, and are talking about real content opportunities to everybody across the spectrum. Uh, and we look forward to, to being able to create really any type of content that the consumer wants from the shortest form to, to the new, you know, single season episodic, streaming television to traditional linear television. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, at this moment in time when we're seeing, you know, uh, we're seeing the launch of massive global streaming services, uh, you're obviously bullish and investing in Village Roadshow. Do you 
think that a company of that of that size and a company that kind of fulfills that tradi- that traditional role of not quite a studio but a bit larger than a boutique can those companies thrive in this environment where we're seeing people kind of be you know networks and platforms and content providers are becoming you know more siloed than they had been in the past um, you know at the same time it is a it, there is a very vibrant demand for content but nonetheless the companies and the control of the content and the rights is very is very concentrated with a you know truly a handful of big big players is that is that daunting as you try to build a build build up a business like a village roadshow uh it, it's exactly the opposite if we were in the distribution business it would be incredibly daunting because distribution is very expensive it requires scale and you're up against the biggest companies on the planet um, we're in the content creation business, and it's those silos that our business model is exactly built to feed. The fact that Warner Brothers is, has built HBO Max and Disney has built Disney Plus and Peacock is coming, uh, that will take up content that previously had been distributed around the industry. So the, the previous consumers of Warner Brothers content are gonna be shut out of Warner Brothers content as it all goes increasingly to HBO Max. That opens the door for for Village Roadshow um, and other investments that we'll make in this space on the production side. They'll be able to to deal independently with all the different platforms as an honest broker and be able to deliver content that meets each one of those and it won't be the same type of content. They'll have a demographic that they'll be trying to fill and we have a very diverse catalog of uh, content in development to be able to meet those needs. So it's those silos that are exactly the business opportunity that we're pursuing because they've shut off content delivery to other platforms that continue to need it. And, and they know, need it themselves. As big as Warner Brothers is, they can't create enough content for HBO Max. It's a, it's a huge enterprise that they're trying to create. They're trying to pe- compete head-to-head with Netflix. Uh, They need high-quality original content. Mm -hmm. And obviously, too, in this environment, the the business, the the traditional TV series, the construct of how studios made money on television series has changed very much. For for Village Roadshow, going into a world where most of your upside is, is calculated up front, maybe not paid up front, but calculated up front, um, that is still, you feel like there's enough of a robust business there to warrant, to justify your investment? We do. We do because it's a blend. There's some element of the, the revenue stream that's, as you described, it's, it's a fixed margin business. Um, and the margins, if you can control production costs and development costs and overhead, are sufficient to, to have a good business. Uh, but that's not our only business. We still have the theatrical leg. We still have our catalog of extremely valuable tentpole titles uh, with Matrix 4 coming down the pike and uh, potentially other sequels to our iconic properties. Uh, those, that's an important leg in the business. There's, um, there's other, you know, we are dealing with the, the linear channels in a more traditional television sense. So there will be international exploitation of content we've developed for a domestic platform. So we look to blend all of them. We don't want any one to be our sole business model, but we think the combination of the three uh, adds value. And the value in 
the fixed price contracts is stability. When you are a, a village roadshow sized enterprise, extreme volatility is dangerous. Stability, even though people tend to focus on, oh, it takes away your upside, it takes away your downside too. And so having a nice element of known profit is very attractive as an investor. Does Village Roadshow, you know, for years, Village Roadshow uh, was very closely aligned in the feature business with Warner Brothers, you know, had had agreements together. Do the, are those still in existence? Do you still have that relationship or are you more of a what more playing the field these days in the film in the, on the film side? We're still a very active partner of Warner Brothers. Um, it's not an exclusive relationship and never actually was. Uh, the, the prior incarnation of Village did several movies with Sony. We have some older Paramount pictures in our, in our catalog. So we've always had the ability and, and have always had relationships with other studios. But uh, we do have an anchor relationship with Warner Brothers and uh, our development of that co-owned IP is... Uh, central to uh, to that part of that relationship, and and we look forward to working with them on a continuing basis. But we are free to do other things with other studios, either the television side of other studios or the theatrical side of other studios. Uh, we'll develop those relationships and continue to do what what is the intersection of the content that we have and the consumer appetite that we see. Mm-hmm. And when you're producing uh, in the TV series realm, do you are there things that you anticipate Village Roadshow producing entirely on their own, or are you gonna is are you still in a business of looking for partners on on a project by project basis? We're very opportunistic. We're capable of doing anything on our own. Um, we accept partners when they make sense within the context of the project. Uh, we don't start things needing a partner. That's not our business model. Um, the company is uh, very well capitalized and capable uh, internally of, of creating and developing and producing anything that we start. But there are just certain times where you know, somebody has a piece of IP and you have a take and putting those two things together makes a lot of sense. And that's where partnerships are organic and important. Um, let's talk about Europa Corp. You are an investor in Europa Corp, and obviously that's a company that that I'm sure gives you a really you know a good sense of the global market for content, you know beyond just beyond the United States. Um, that company's obviously been through; they've just been through a restructuring. They've had a lot of management changes in the last couple of years. What do you uh, you know what what has kept you invested in Europa Corp? Let me ask you the the kind of the, the bigger picture question about the content business that that I'm sure you have to as an investor really evaluate. One of the things as we've been talking about the the production models, the the profit models are all changing for film and television, and that makes it very hard to to evaluate and really put a number on the long term value of an individual movie, an individual television program. How, as you look at as you know, you have you have been in the business of buying film libraries. You bought the Lakeshore Entertainment Library a couple of years ago. Village Roadshow has a library. How do you go about, you know, in in a world where syndication futures, as you if you will, are not nearly as predictable as they once were, because the market is so much bigger? How do, what are the what are the measures? What are the what are the yardsticks that you use to evaluate? a library that you're considering 
buying or the potential of a property that you're considering investing in at a time when so, when there's so much about the way people make money is changing? Um, <clears throat> there is a lot of change going on. Uh, we do a very granular analysis of any library we're looking to acquire. And what that means is you're really looking at, at the individual pieces of content and what their the rights are that are associated with them and what channels are available to you and what channels will be exploited in the future. So you do have a lot of visibility, even though there's change coming, you do have a lot of visibility because the path of content is sort of set when it's created and then it's observable over, over its life. And what I mean by that is the change that's happening is going to be happening more to new content than to library content. And so it's easier to address. So a new piece of content that you make for Netflix, you know, it doesn't have the, the life cycle that it would have had 15 years ago because Netflix doesn't operate the way they did then and, um, and the world doesn't operate that way. So you know, now you have a, an opportunity to make something for a margin, and you, but you don't get the international upside. Um, so that's sort of the, what you're talking about in terms of the change that's happening the rights that had historically been left with producers or monetized in different ways aren't being that monetized in those ways. Uh, but there's a lot of library older assets that still are where the rights aren't controlled in the same way as they're going to be controlled in the future. Uh, there's still a, a very robust international demand for content. The more and more, um, quality pieces of IP that get locked up in these streaming platforms, the less and less independent distributors in foreign territories have available. So, you know, we can look at things very granularly. We can still understand how they're going to be exploited over the next 30 years, and we can still measure that with a high degree of, of accuracy. And as, and as we continue to evolve our portfolio, we're always looking behind and forward. You know, how were our projections when we made them and how does that influence how we make future projections? And that robust level of data that we have uh, gives us comfort, lets us sleep at night, that we understand how much content is worth because we look at it. You can't just say in general how much content is worth. You have to look at individual pieces mm -hmm. and model it out separately. Is it fair to say that you are seeing a diminishing you know, revenue stream coming from traditional sources like broadcast syndication, like cable syndication in the U.S. I mean, is that, are those businesses, you know, seeing the, feeling the decline that we are seeing in the macro sense of the shrinking cable universe? The domestic TV is under a little bit of pressure, but international TV is still robust. And overall, the international market is now larger than the U.S. market. So, um, on the whole, those, those have balanced out. Um, the counter is international TV or domestic TV. They, they still need content and they, they still have uh, audiences to cater to. They still have a demographic that wants to see a certain thing. So um, while they're under pressure, uh, they're under pressure to keep their audience as well. And, and that keeps a certain amount of, of demand on their side mm -hmm. that, that benefits owners. And you, um, your company, Vine, at times will go into like buying, you know, very specific portfolios, portfolios of, of interest in, in content that a producer might have or a showrunner or a star 
it, you get you get that granular in some deal making, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. We've we do everything from single pictures, either films or or television shows, up to libraries of a hundred plus, three hundred plus titles. Mm-hmm. So we're we're capable of spanning the universe of uh, of investment. Mm-hmm. And do you do you license the library because you you've picked up you know Village Roadshow, Europa, Lakeshore? Do you have some for, for, some way to license the library? Do you market the library as a as a Vine alternative investments library, or do you do it sort of by brand when you're if you're trying to license you know do a big content licensing deal? Right now, we're still licensing titles under the original. Uh, cat library names. So if you're talking about Reicher or Gaylord or some of the other titles that we've have where we have international distribution, um, our distribution still uses the the originals just the, because that's the familiar name in the marketplace. Um, as we get bigger, we will entertain whether or not the, the Vine brand um, gives us scale. You know, we've acquired the capacity to service and sell those assets uh, across the globe. So we're doing all of that internally with the acquisitions we've made. Um, so with increasing acquisitions, it will just organically become more familiar to the marketplace that these are Vine assets. So, but at this, at this moment, do you have your own kind of like licensing and distribution team or it's handled we do. by? You do. We do. We have foreign sales and uh, all of the back office support you need to, to handle that from delivery to payment of participations. So and all of those, all of the capabilities within the Vine ecosystem. Gotcha, and it, that's based in LA? Is It is, it is. Gotcha. Um, Jim, before you started, uh, before you co-founded Vine Alternative Investments in 2006, you spent uh, 16 years with JP Morgan as a banker mm-hmm. working in asset-backed securities what was it about your time at J.P. Morgan that led you to launch Vine? You know, at, at J.P. Morgan, my clients were specialty finance companies that um, that needed to finance themselves in a creative way, and did so by issuing asset-backed securities backed by any number of different esoteric assets, uh, from golf cars to airplanes, helicopters regular cars, you name it. It was a very diverse uh, universe of customers that I served at JP Morgan. Um, what that taught me was you know, what uh, investors looked for in institutional grade investments and how they liked the cash flows and the, diverse, the importance of diversification and, and correlation. Um, there was a consumer credit cycle and a commercial credit cycle uh, and when I came across the entertainment sector, I realized that there was no credit cycle associated with the entertainment sector. Yes, it went up and down, but it didn't go up and down with respect to when the stock market went up and down or when credit went up and down or when the economy went up and down. And we we did a lot of digging. We did a lot of homework. And we were able to demonstrate that we could create an institutional quality investment out of investing in media and entertainment. And it was differentiated. It was an opportunity to give something to the investor base that they had no access to before. Uh, and we tested that business model and, and ultimately launched our first fund in 2007, right before the crash. And the crash 
very articulately demonstrated that, that those assets could survive and thrive in a very adverse market. And that's what led to the growth of Vine for the last 13 years. So you, so uh, economic downturns are, are nothing new. <laughs> you, uh, you have managed your way through them in the past. Are there any lessons from 2000, 2008, 2009 period you think that will be applicable to the, you know, what we hope will be the great reemergence in the, in the coming months? You know, the, from an investor's standpoint, the big lesson and people tend to forget this is uh, just because the industry is not correlated doesn't mean you can't make bad deals. Uh, and it's it's discipline in deal making, it's it's discipline and risk taking that are the most important elements of success. It's uh, from my perspective, it's about creating partnerships that benefit both sides. Those are the best deals, and when they do benefit both sides, you know you're there to come back, and the, and your partner is there to to do more and. And that creates a, a virtuous circle of growth. So it, the, the lesson is clearly just because there's, there's a lot of liquidity and this sector is not correlated doesn't mean every deal you can do is going to make money. You really have to stick to, your, to the nuts and bolts of, of what you do and really understand the nuances of the space. Great. Well, Jim, thank you for spending time with us to help us do just that. I really appreciate it. It's, it's great to talk with you. Good luck getting through this, and we'll definitely stay tuned. Thank you, Cynthia. This was great. I appreciate the time to talk. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business.